0: In 1956, he first appeared on motion picture screens across the country. His impact on audiences was instantaneous and unprecedented. His acting technique was revolutionary. His presence overwhelming. I'm a member of every guild there is, uh, including the Producers Guild. So, you know, I've had to work within the confines of all of the restrictions and all the stuff that can get in the way yeah. of making the movie and telling the story story that you, that yeah. you want to. But I mean, do you have a, a dog in this fight? I mean, do you support the strike? Uh, where do you... I'm a, I'm a member of every guild there is, uh, including the Producers Guild. Do you support the strike? I'm a, I'm a member of every guild there is, uh, including the Producers Guild, including the Producers Guild, including the Producers guild. Godzilla, the greatest star of all, has returned. Welcome to the Thousands of Tiny Tyrants podcast, where we'll be giving you a unique insider's perspective into the motion picture industry. I'm James Harker, your Triple T podcast host. I'm thrilled to have you join me as I share what I've learned working behind the scenes for more than 25 years on some of Hollywood's biggest films, including West Side Story, The Departed, and Vanilla Sky, as well as on television shows, indie films, and hundreds of commercials. Let's jump right into the biggest story in Hollywood. The Writers Guild and Screen Actors Guild strikes against the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers. If you're into acronyms and initializations, that's SAG and the WGA versus the AMPTP. These are the first dual strikes to hit Hollywood in more than 60 years. The last time this happened, in 1960, the president of the Screen Actors Guild was none other than Ronald Reagan, who, 20 years later, would become the 40th president of the United States and who would famously and only somewhat ironically go on to crush the Federal Air Traffic Controllers Union and end their illegal strike less than seven months into his presidency. As you can imagine, there aren't any Ronald Reagan types working for the Hollywood studios these days. Nevertheless, we've been hearing from elite members of SAG and the WGA that these strikes are a Bambi meets Godzilla tragedy in which unfairly exploited actors and staff screenwriters are being crushed by the AMPTP and its Apex Predator studio clients. In fact. Some of Hollywood's biggest players have been breathlessly telling us for weeks that the movie industry's very existence hangs in the balance, and that the studio Godzilla may well destroy all of Hollywood in its reptilian pursuit of the helpless Bambies the Guilds purport to be protecting. And the media has, predictably, run with that stereotypical and melodramatic narrative. To be fair, there's much truth to what the Guild's rank-and-file members are saying. The background and workaday actors and the little-known screenwriters on whose membership the legitimacy of the guilds depends have long been low on the list of guild leadership's concerns. Instead, at the top of the WGA and SAG priority lists are the producers within their guilds, producers such as Tom Hanks, who we heard from at the top of the show. And there are hundreds and hundreds of producers in the ranks of the writers' and screen actors' guilds to say nothing of the directors' guild. Union and guild members are, bizarrely, also producers and production company owners, effectively managers and employers of their union brothers and sisters. These are obvious loyalty conflicts that make the interests of the largest group of union members subordinate to the interests of an oligarchy of elite union member bosses or so-called Hollywood players. It's these conflicts of interest, as well as union leadership's, in some cases, illegal efforts to hide from their members the extent of the chicanery that are the primary impediments to improving the lives of Hollywood's rank-and-file workers. And it's not as if these competing interests are a secret. Listen to WGA member and showrunner Craig Mazin during an interview with screenwriter, WGA board member, and executive producer Billy Ray on the Deadline Strike Talk podcast as their guild strike approached its 100th
1: day. My question is, is the AMPTP
0: as a negotiating entity fundamentally broken? I do think the AMPTP will continue for the same reason the writer's guild will continue. You want to talk about a disparate group of people. The Writers Guild includes people like me. I'm management. I'm management. I shouldn't even be in the guild. They should kick me out. I run a television show. I can hire and fire writers. That's the definition of management. Craig Mazin's comments to Billy Ray were on the money. Mazin and Ray shouldn't be members of the WGA. They and thousands of supervisors like them don't belong in a union with their subordinates who are effectively their employees. Mazen, Ray, and other managers shouldn't be negotiating or even voting on their subordinates' union contracts. And they should not be in union leadership positions. But they are. By the thousands. And it isn't only the WGA, SAG, DGA, and IoT who should be purging their membership roles of managers. The AMPTP should have Mazen and every other manager and supervisor removed from Hollywood's guilds and unions a move, by the way, explicitly supported by federal law because those managers are authorized to work in the interests of their employers, the studios, and not in the interests of the guilds and unions to which they have pledged their loyalty. It is the paradox of these bewildering conflicts of interest and the cunning efforts of the unions and the AMPTP to perpetuate them to the detriment of both rank and file workers and the studios that will be central to this and subsequent Triple T podcasts. The Hollywood labor management system is broken, but not as you will learn in the ways the guilds and the talking heads in the media suggest. The question is, does anyone have the vision and courage to fix it? I hope you'll stick around. Thousands of tiny tyrants will be right back.
2: This is totally business. This ain't art. This is
0: literally the bread and butter issues of how can that pie that financial pie be divided. Welcome back to Thousands of Tiny Tyrants, the Mostly Movies podcast. We just listened to Tom Hanks again from his interview with PBS a few days after the start of the WGA strike. As Hanks makes clear, these strikes are not about art. They're about who gets a slice of the pie and how many slices they'll get. Hanks, who co-founded production company Playtone Pictures 25 years ago, and who has produced and created dozens of films and television shows, knows better than most how the pie is supposed to be divided. Hanks also knows how costly these strikes are for him and his company, which, as I record this, and according to IMDb Pro, has 18 projects in development. If it seems like I'm picking on Tom Hanks, that's because I am picking on Tom Hanks. Why? Because Hanks and union member producers like him, rather than the studios, are the biggest roadblocks to improving the lives of the motion picture industry's rank and file. Now I've worked with Tom Hanks. I was on the crew of Steven Spielberg's The Post, in which Hanks starred. In my experience and by all reports, Tom Hanks is a professional and a gentleman. But Hanks is also among the most highly compensated and powerful union member producers working in Hollywood. Let's listen to Hanks answer the PBS interviewer's question about whether or not, as an actor, producer, and production company executive, he supports what was at the time, in May 2023, only the WGA strike. But I mean, do you have a, a dog in this fight? I mean, do you support the strike? Uh, where do you, do you well, speak up? There's, uh, there's
2: no question that this has to be figured out now. now. <laughs> now. 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 now.
1: goes to Tom Hanks.
0: This has to be figured out now, Hanks pleaded just days into the first of these two strikes. To his credit, Tom Hanks has chosen, however tentatively and evasively, to speak out. And we should all, especially those of us who work in Hollywood, listen to him closely and be grateful that he did so. Because his equivocation, as a member of every guild there is, including the Producers Guild, offers us a fleeting glimpse, If we look carefully, of Tom Hanks in his Godzilla costume. The same Godzilla costume worn by hundreds and hundreds of Hollywood's A-list, apex predator union member actors, writers, and directors who are also producers. The same A-list predators who present themselves as fellow travelers of the helpless Bambi artists they have declared are being robbed and terrorized by greedy studios and streaming companies. Companies that these A-listers, with the uncritical help of the media, have cast to play their Godzilla, The same companies these A-listers have vilified, the same companies to whose executives these A-list predators pitch and appeal to purchase or finance their projects. So that they, Hanks and the other union member Godzillas, can continue to take for themselves and their companies the biggest bites from the studio financing carcass, leaving only leftovers for their rank-and-file union brothers and sisters.
1: Come on, Bambi. Get up.
0: Try again.
1: Come on, get up. Come on. Get up, Bambi. Get up.
0: In the interests of bringing the Hollywood A-listers Bambi Meets Godzilla Kabuki Theater production into clear focus, let's talk for a minute about what a union is and what it's supposed to do. First... There is no meaningful difference between a union and a guild. IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, is a union that represents below-the-line crew, such as electricians, grips, hairstylists, and many others. And the WGA and SAG are guilds that represent writers and performing artists. All three are labor organizations, actually labor cartels, which we'll discuss in a minute, permitted by federal law to engage in certain activities on behalf of the workers for whom they are the exclusive bargaining agent or representative. Keep the phrase exclusive bargaining agent at the back of your mind. It will be important later for now suffice it to say that because of the exclusivity granted to these labor cartels an employer whose workers are unionized is forbidden by law from negotiating directly with any organization other than the union and those employers are also forbidden from negotiating with individual union members the employer can only negotiate with union officials and if the studios attempt to go around the union they could be charged with an unfair labor practice
1: Welcome to the training. The Supreme Court of the United States has prohibited discrimination aimed at encouraging employees to join, retain membership or stay in good standing with a labor organization. It shall be an unfair labor practice for a labor organization or its agents to restrain or coerce employees.
0: Now, before we go on to discuss what unions are supposed to do, let's talk briefly about the very important subject of cartels and the relationships between cartels and labor unions. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 prohibits agreements and conspiracies to restrain trade in various ways because doing so undermines competition in the marketplace and harms consumers. Most of us know that business monopolies are illegal under antitrust laws. A monopoly harms consumers by, for example, limiting the supply of particular goods and inflating prices. If Samsung tried to buy every cell phone manufacturer so we'd all be forced to buy our phones from Samsung at outrageous prices, the government would block Samsung's attempt to harness monopoly power in the cell phone market. We can thank the Sherman Antitrust Act for that protection. In addition to outlawing monopolies, the Sherman Act also prohibits businesses and individuals from forming cartels. Cartels are organizations composed of two or more competitors who cooperate in order, for example, to fix prices or to fix wages or to limit production of a product. Cartels, like monopolies, are illegal and those involved can face stiff civil and criminal penalties. In recent decades we most often hear about cartels in the context of the illicit drug trade in the 1990s the cocaine business was dominated by pablo escobar's medellin drug cartel more recently it's mexico's drug cartels such as the sinaloa cartel that grab headlines coercive threats of violence notwithstanding drug cartels are formed so that the illegal drugs these otherwise natural competitors produce and distribute can be consistently sold at prices higher than would otherwise be possible in a competitive marketplace. Drug cartels ensure that drug prices, and along with that, cartel member profits, remain artificially high. By now, you're probably asking yourself, why is he talking about drug cartels? I thought this was a podcast about the movie business. Well, there are two reasons. First, Under antitrust law, labor unions, including every one of Hollywood's unions and guilds, fit the definition of a cartel because they are collectives of individuals competing for the same jobs. And if those workers cooperate and form a cartel, it is all but certain the cartel will drive up the price of labor and, in doing so, will necessarily drive up prices and harm consumers. Were it not for a crucial exemption granted by the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, the WGA, the DGA, SAG, and the Teamsters Union, and IATSE would all be illegal under the Sherman Act. The Clayton Act immunizes the labor union cartels from antitrust liability as long as they are involved, and this is important, in legitimate collective bargaining activities. We'll address the implications of those limits in a future podcast. But for now, it's enough to know that one Cartels are illegal. Two, Hollywood's guilds and unions are cartels. And three, union cartels are permitted to exist and operate within certain legal limits.
1: Welcome to a training that's being conducted by the National Labor Relations Board in connection with IOC local 52, Motion Picture Studio Mechanics. Who is protected as an employee under the act? Most employees of private sector employers are protected by the statute. These rights protect only employees and generally do not protect supervisors and managers.
0: The second reason I'm talking about cartels is that the reputed nemesis of the Hollywood Union cartels, the AMPTP, is also a cartel. And just like the unions, the AMPTP and other trade groups like it, composed of businesses large and small, are immune from antitrust liability. Why? Because under the National Labor Relations Act and various other federal legal precedents and state laws, businesses are permitted to form cartels for the purpose of negotiating with labor unions. So... Anyone who wants to get rid of the AMPTP will first need to get rid of Hollywood's unions and guilds. Otherwise, pleas from union member producers like WGA heavyweight Billy Ray to break up the AMPTP are little more than wealthy and powerful Hollywood union members shouting at the clouds.
1: Who's laughing now? (laughs) Shut up.
0: Like it or not. The WGA, SAG, and the rest of the unions and guilds are stuck with the AMPTP or one or more trade associations like it. So what is a union supposed to do? As most of us know, a union's primary responsibilities are to negotiate the highest possible wages and benefits as well as the best working conditions for its members. Unions are also responsible for enforcing the contracts they negotiate and for pursuing grievances or other processes such as appeals for government agency intervention when bargaining units members' rights are violated. are supposed to function democratically, and the U.S. Congress even created an agency charged with ensuring that unions operate as democracies. That federal agency is the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Labor Management Standards. In order for a union democracy to be fair and effective, members must share what the National Labor Relations Board calls a, quote, community of interests, unquote. And for a union democracy to function in its members' interests, those members must be knowledgeable and engaged in their union's affairs. Now, Obviously, Hollywood's unions and guilds do negotiate contracts that fix wage rates and working conditions, but this is not the primary value Hollywood's unions deliver for their members. Let me play a clip from an unpublished interview I did with an IATSE member a few weeks ago during which I was asked about the WGA and SAG strikes. Exclusivity. The main function of unions in the motion picture industry is exclusion. Because it's a freelance work environment, because... Everyone in the business goes from job to job. And those jobs, for some people, could be a day. For others, they could be 10 consecutive seasons on a television show with three months breaks in between where they don't work at all if they feel like it. But for most most people, those long gigs don't exist. And what these unions provide is a certain level of job security by locking out competition from non-member talent, technicians, assistant directors primary function of these unions is to ensure that you will only be competing for work with other union members to the extent that it's desirable. As one producer put it to me, a union card is a right to work card, and that's illegal. The exclusion of non-member workers from the workplace, from the hiring pool, is not a legitimate function of a labor union, although everybody seems to think it is because they understand that that's the greatest value that these unions give to them. The moment an actor, grip, writer, electrician, costumer, payroll accountant, location manager, assistant director, production manager, or carpenter gains entry into a Hollywood union, they are made. Once someone is granted union membership in Hollywood, they are made in almost precisely the sense someone becomes a made man in the Sicilian and American mafias. As a matter of fact, Iozzi has a long mafia history, but we'll talk more about that in a future podcast. And like the Mafia's made men, Hollywood's union members enjoy benefits over non-members to which they, as union members, are not entitled by law. The first of these benefits being exclusive access to employment. For the privilege of becoming a made man or woman in Hollywood, one must literally swear an oath of loyalty and an oath of silence in the interests of protecting the movie industry family. This
2: family comes before everything else. Everything. Everything for your wife, and your children, and your mother, and your father. You stay within the family. OK. That's St. Peter, my family saint. Now, was that card burned, so may your soul burn in hell if you betray your friends and the family. Now, rub your hands together like this, and repeat after me. May I burn in hell.
1: May, may I, I burn, burn in hell.
2: If I betray my friends if I betray I my, my friends. friends?
0: But what it is critical to know is that when someone joins a motion picture industry union or guild, what they are doing first and foremost is buying access to employment, access to employment that is paid for with hefty initiation fees and dues payments, as well as very often more than a little bit of your soul. But aspiring filmmakers are willing to climb over one another to pay these fees because without a union card it is nearly impossible to work in hollywood and this has been the case in tinseltown for generations once you have a union card you don't need to worry about being displaced by a member of the bargaining unit who doesn't have a union card even if that non-member has superior experience one of the many consequences of this illegal de facto closed shop and incestuous labor environment an environment in which members of one union or another supervise and control virtually every aspect of the personnel and production processes. One consequence has been a lack of engagement among union members in union affairs. This lack of engagement naturally results from job access being the primary value of union membership. But Hollywood's union members are also inactive in union affairs because individuals or groups that exercise their democratic rights within the union, or even in the workplace, risk angering the union leaders and union members who, in spite of laws barring them from doing so, control access to work and who, in many cases, have lucrative secondary business entanglements with production companies that those union bosses don't want jeopardized by a subordinate union member who, for example, files a contract grievance.
2: I sent it to our attorney to look at. We have a couple of issues with regards to the NLRB okay she says what could very well happen if it goes to the NLRB right the problem is if they establish she says and they're going to look into it the fact that he was a supervisor supervisors are not covered by collective bargaining agreements okay so what could potentially happen is they No, they designate him as a supervisor, he no longer can work under a union contract, right? Then that applies throughout the business. That means every gaffer and every key grip and every prop master could potentially no longer be covered by the contract.
0: We don't want that to happen. What do rank-and-file workers who engage in federally protected union activity have to contend with from the made men in Hollywood's unions and guilds? Here's one example from my many, many experiences with anti-union members within Hollywood's labor organizations. Listen, if you can, over the roaring motorcycle to retired Iozzi and presumed Screen Actors Guild member and, appropriately enough, Sopranos and Godzilla 1998 actor Joseph Badalucco Jr., confront me outside the IATSE Local 52 Union Hall in Queens, New York following a membership meeting in December, 2022. As you listen, keep in mind that only minutes earlier, two field agents from the National Labor Relations Board had attended the meeting to hear the union's president, John R. Ford, vow to end decades of abuse and illegal discrimination against thousands of motion picture industry laborers by Local 52 officials and its supervising member department heads.
2: said hey, Joe. How are you? Yeah. I'm alright. Nice to see oh, you. See you. Listen, listen. listen, I, you know, I started in 1978. <laughs> guys like you would have got a beat. Plain and simple. Yep. Would have never got that far. You got a fucking beat. You're going to shut up. What well, a times now. Whatever. And you think you're doing the thing? Very good. Come well, on. Uh, it wasn't good, This is a good use. It's been around forever. Hey, okay? We had our ways of doing stuff. And, and, and we got by, You know what I'm saying? And things were good. But what you did was bad.
0: Joe. It was bad. Brother. What they did to what me was bad. What did they do? What did they do? Did they do? Yeah. They blackballed me for a while. None. I went and did all the <laughs> and I came back. Don't be
2: <laughs> a deal. I got blackballed. Joe Battle got blackballed in the business. I went somewhere else and I worked for a year. And then I came back. You know what? do that okay that's why that's where we're at brother you made a mistake and now you got everybody don't like you see me i sucked it up and i, didn't do that. I went to work somewhere else and then i came back i didn't <laughs> sue them <laughs> stupid that's all i had to say thanks joe merry christmas
0: mobster cosplayers power thirsty climbers guilds and unions infiltrated and controlled by predator, A-list, actor, writer, and director-producers, both famous and obscure. These are just a few of the obstacles standing between real working people and a better life laboring for Hollywood. But if after all this, you haven't begun to question the narrative about these strikes that is being peddled to the public, let me attempt to illustrate how broken the Hollywood labor management system is with an example drawn not from La La Land, but from the real world. Consider this analogy to the incongruous presence of independent producers within the WGA, SAG, and the DGA. Imagine you work for General Motors and that you are a member of the United Auto Workers Union. Under the collective bargaining agreement between the UAW and GM, union auto workers in GM's plants earn $30 per hour. You and your UAW colleagues do precisely the same job, often work side by side under the same conditions, and you and your colleagues all qualify for union membership by virtue of possessing precisely the same skills. One day, you are surprised to learn that one of your UAW colleagues is paid 10, 20, or even 100 times the wages you are paid. This is even more shocking because your highly compensated colleague has worked at the General Motors plant half as long as you. How could this be, you ask yourself, especially in a union shop? What you find out is that the GM executives really like this UAW colleague. In fact, the executives like him so much that your UAW colleague negotiated a separate deal with General Motors outside of the UAW's collective bargaining agreement. And that separate deal was negotiated, not by your union, but by a private negotiator hired by your colleague with the help of his private negotiator your UAW colleague is paid orders of magnitude more per hour for doing the same union job you do for much less and this is all done with the expressed approval of the united auto workers union which represents itself as the exclusive bargaining agent for all auto workers even as the UAW permits your GM favored colleague to be represented by a private agent would this arrangement seem fair to you or would you be concerned. But there's more to it than that. In order to justify to rank and file auto workers like you the extraordinary sums your favored colleague's personal represented negotiated for him, you are told by the UAW that your highly compensated colleague performs management tasks for General Motors. He runs every aspect of the plant floor. He attends and participates in management meetings, and he supervises your work as well as the activities of union workers in other areas of the plant. What's more, your colleague is involved in hiring, promoting, and disciplining you and your fellow UAW member workers. He is, no matter how you slice it, your boss and an executive of the company. Sometimes your colleague even hires you for special projects that he controls completely and is, in those instances, and for all intents and purposes, your employer. You even find yourself negotiating your salary with your GM-favored union brother without the aid and support of your union. All the while, your GM-manager colleague also votes on UAW contracts. In fact, your employer-favored colleague is eventually elected as the president of your union while still exercising management authority over you in the GM plant. When you object to any of these arrangements, you are told that that's the way it works. And you are also told that one day, if you continue to work hard and play by your colleague boss's rules, and if you are lucky, someday you might also be invited to control the working lives of your UAW brothers and sisters, and that one day you might even manage your own automotive plant. And it quickly becomes clear to you that if you are ever invited to be an elite UAW worker and GM manager and cut your own extra contractual deal for 10 or 20 or 100 times your union-negotiated salary, it will probably be your elite GM-favored union colleague who invites you, since GM relies entirely on him for managing the auto plant. In the meantime the UAW, and the elite colleague who manages your work subtly recommend to you that you should keep your head down and your mouth shut if you know what's good for you. Does all this sound like an absurd relationship between members of the same labor union? Of course it does. You don't need to work at the National Labor Relations Board or go to law school to grasp the irreconcilable conflicts of interest in this scenario. But the Alice in Wonderland through-the-looking-glass labor management arrangement I just described is almost perfectly analogous to what the WGA and SAG have done with their guilds and to their members with the blessing of the AMPTP since the studio system collapsed and as the number of independent producers making movies and television shows ballooned. Listen to WGA member, showrunner, and executive producer Rob Long on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast almost 17 weeks into his guild's strike.
1: Only 6% of private sector workers are in a union. Right. Hollywood has had these unions for a long time. Before we get to the specific complaints that the Director's Guild, the Writer's Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild might have. Is this play-acting? It, it isn't play-acting
2: in the sense that these are real concerns that have a real impact. But the the drama of
0: it all is a little bit, you know, sometimes I, I think of it as a little bit much, right? I mean, people forget in show business, the writer is the boss, right? In television, anyway. When I do a TV show, I'm the boss. I'm the
2: man, essentially. I'm the guy who hires and fires. I've made, I have made more deals with writers, as a writer as a person run tv shows than I've had made for me by my agent or you
0: know people like that so the way the system works it's it's not exactly that the machinists and the you know the the tool guys and those those guys are all kind of working in a cadre the writers in television and and everything now is television are in charge before the rank and file workers in Hollywood's guilds and unions can truly improve their lives in the workplace they must purge their membership roles of the thugs and the managers and the supervisors and the crony capitalist A-list and even B-list predator-producers who are undermining union democracies. And before the studios and streamers and their stockholders can hope to improve the efficiency of their operations and along with that profits so that they can, if they choose and the union democracies are strong enough to demand it, fairly compensate the real laborers in the motion picture industry The studios and the streamers and the AMPTP must force out from the unions and guilds the producers and the managers and supervisors who, under law, are expected to work in the interests of those studios and streamers. Because this is the bottom line. The Hollywood guild and union member managers and producers are operating in neither the interests of rank-and-file union members nor in the interests of the employers, the studios and streamers. The Hollywood union oligarchs, are the real Godzillas and the thousands of tiny tyrants in this tragedy are furthering first and foremost their interests, the interests of the Hollywood union member elite. I hope you've enjoyed the first episode of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants and that we've helped you see a little more clearly why Hollywood's labor management system is broken. Please join us for future Triple T podcasts when we'll be talking about How unions influence which movies and TV shows you get to watch. The damage inflicted on Hollywood labor by Iotsi, Frank Nitti, and the Chicago Mob. How the WGA's efforts to bring antitrust action against the streamers could backfire and force the AMPTP to deploy its Oppenheimer option against all of Hollywood's unions. We'll look at the independent producer con game through the lens of Hollywood's iconic 1973 film The Sting and much, much more. And Triple T hopes to bring you some special guests. To that end, I'd like to extend invitations to Billy Ray, Craig Mazin, Tom Hanks, Rob Long, Carol Lombardini of the A.M.P.T.P., as well as motion picture producers, performers, and union leaders who'd like to discuss these important issues. But for now, farewell from the Triple T podcast. And may you, good people of conscience, keep the thousands of tiny tyrants at bay.